The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Just the same, Father. Good to see you. Now. Yes, you too. Great to be here. Uh, Father, we have a few things on the docket for tonight, um, a couple viewer emails, um, some questions relating to a, a previous program, and I know you also have some some current events that you would like to discuss, but... I don't know, before, before, yes, before. if you don't mind, uh, we need to ask for some prayers, okay? So um, let's uh, remember the need to pray for all of our viewers who are ill, right, their loved ones. Uh, Rita Davidson talked about uh, her mom being ill, and uh, a goodly number of others have asked for prayers. I ask for prayers particularly for uh, Rita Davidson's mother, and also for Nancy and Lori Nelson, and uh, for Joanne Lopez, who is also ill. <clears throat> but there are many others, too, so I ask you in your charity, please keep through your prayers. <clears throat> Remember, uh, our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, among the Beatitudes is this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And when you pray for others, you are being merciful. And so that is a very good way to obtain mercy yourself, by showing that mercy to others, by praying prayer for, praying for them. So, Absolutely. heartily recommend it. Yeah. All right, thank you for that, Father. Um, I thought we could start with uh, a topic that you just briefly mentioned in, in passing, I think, on one of our previous programs, but we had some email response to it. Um, and so I wanted to mention this topic of monoclonal antibodies mm -hmm. in regards to the uh, the uh, coronavirus. Um, these antibodies, some of our viewers were concerned, were tainted uh, by abortion. And uh, it seemed, Father, Father that you uh, perhaps, at least implicitly, seemed to uh, say that you were in some, in some way uh, supportive of these monoclonal antibodies. But Again, our viewers were concerned because they seem to be abortion-tainted. So would you like to clear that matter up at all? Mm -hmm. Well, the reason why that subject came up on the program is because the uh, you know, resident Biden was limiting their use mm -hmm. and making them harder and harder to get, whereas uh, Governor De uh, DeSantis, DeSantis in Florida uh, was relying heavily on them to stem the tide, as it were, in Florida and considered it to be very, very successful. Uh, but I, I did say when I spoke about this that I didn't really know what was going into those monoclonal antibodies. So I think I made it pretty clear that I, I uh, wasn't endorsing them. But I, I just thought it was interesting that um, you had a governor of a state insisting how helpful they were. And then, uh, you know, President Biden uh, doing what he could to prevent them getting it. <laughs> so uh, I think that's just another uh, example of a an effort to force everyone to get vaccinated. Um, and the FDA just um, also withdrew its emergency use author authorization for the uh, monoclonal anti antibodies. Um, since that program, when I um, and I pointed out that the uh, the Biden uh, regime was trying to uh, withhold those, um, while others were insisting that they were helpful. I have found out something about the origin of these monoclonal antibodies, which is not not encouraging at all. And um, you know, you read the um, explanations of how they're derived, uh, talking about humanized mice and okay. so on. So, uh, again, it just sounds like more uh, genetic engineering. And uh, whether, whether they actually involve 
the cells of aborted children. I don't know. I, I, I haven't really come across that clear statement yet. There are others who may well know full well that, that the monoclonal antibodies are derived from or tested with cells of aborted children. Uh, I'd like to see the evidence of that. But nonetheless, I mean, even what I, what I have read is not encouraging as far as their, uh, their providence. So I um, can't exactly recommend them, knowing what I do, because there are so many other things that are very helpful and are perfectly legitimate to use uh, as therapies for this, for this so-called um, virus and its variants. One thing's clear is that the, uh, the leaky so-called vaccines, the experimental uh, agents that they produced and now are calling vaccines, and by the way, uh, one of the higher-ups in, uh, in Pfizer himself said that they, they called them vaccines even though they're not vaccines because if they called them by their proper names, people would not take them. And so they had to disguise them as vaccines in order to induce people to take them. So when, you know, a, a high-level official in uh, Pfizer, um, one of the leading producers of these things, uh, comes out and says that publicly, then you know you have a serious problem of honesty and integrity, trustfulness and so on, trustworthiness. Um, so um, we know that uh, the vaccines are really basically from poison. <coughs> Um, but that there are some very effective remedies for this that uh, can prevent one from, you know, becoming dangerously ill and even, uh, you know, hospitalized. <clears throat> and the we know that the protocol that is in use uh, in the hospitals is actually very lethal. So in any case, without getting in any deeper into the vaccine issue, uh, it's certainly worthy of getting... Um, getting into it deeper. Um, uh, as far as the monoclonal antibodies itself uh, themselves go, uh, it seems that that's just another <clears throat> form of uh, bizarre genetic engineering that we wouldn't want to support. Mm -hmm. um, and there are other. There's certainly there are other ways that one can, uh, you know, offset it, overcome. Uh, this illness. So, mm -hmm. okay. Well, um, that's good, Father. Perhaps, uh, perhaps this next question can somewhat tie into that. It's from a uh, one of our very faithful viewers. He wanted uh, to know, Father, if you could clarify the necessity of doing one's due diligence. He um, uh, apparently <clears throat> would like to know if you could uh, kind of draw a clarification for us and. Um, in, in this question, should we just trust everything uh, that our pastors tell us, uh, just give them carte blanche and, and totally be trustworthy of them? Or uh, do we have a responsibility to totally and thoroughly investigate every single claim that we hear from our, from our priests and pastors? Is there perhaps some middle ground that we should take? And what, what uh, principles should we follow? Uh, do you ask this of yourself or of others? Asked? <laughs> of others, Father. <laughs> yeah, others are brothers to you, don't you? Uh, well, you, you can't take any human uh, authority or any human voice and, and make it infallible. Right? Only God can grant the charism of infallibility, and he only does that to a supreme pontiff, vicar of Christ on earth, who's speaking ex cathedra, right? Or the church itself, speaking through its ordinary magisterium. <clears throat> but there's no other infallible voice in the face of the earth, and it would be a very serious mistake. <clears throat> to endow uh, endow any human authority with the, <clears throat> with the cares of infallibility. Uh, nowadays, uh, it seems that the medical community wants to endow the FDA and the NIH and NAIA, uh, you know, with uh, that the character of infallibility that everything they say is infallible, even if they contradict themselves from one day to the next. That even you know they're infallible on, on any given day when they're correcting the infallible statements of the day before. Um, unfortunately, this is what you have when you don't have faith, you know. But those of us who do have faith from God realize that God is the only infallible voice. And uh, any infallibility that enjoy, anyone enjoys must be derived from him. And so he has endowed his, his church with a charism of infallibility. And um, 
and then only very certain circumstances, right? The Supreme Pontiff speaking ex cathedra and the ordinary magisterium. Um, thus, you know, when it comes to our own traditional Catholic priests today, um, they, they, lay people really should um, not endow, should not, uh, what should I say, um, attribute infallible pronouncements to them. And I don't know of a single traditional Catholic priest uh, who would claim infallibility. As soon as someone did claim infallibility, then you, you realize that's extremely fallible right there, <laughs> and you should not listen to it. Um, so it is not wrong to question. I mean, one can go to the one can go to extremes, right? Extremes of questioning nothing, and the extremes of questioning everything. There are some contrary, contrary, uh, contrary people who just have kind of a, a reflex a reaction to question everything they're told. And that obviously derives from a perverse spirit. <clears throat> um, then you, one would ask, I mean, a traditional Catholic priest would have to ask someone like that, why, why, do, you, why do you even trust me to be the you know, priest that you come to for Mass and the Sacraments if you absolutely don't trust me in anything? Um, so uh, one of the... Um, the responsibility of every Catholic today is to follow the faith. And uh, the faith is very well known. It's in the catechisms throughout the centuries, right? We have the ordinary magisterium of the church teaching the faith throughout the centuries. It's enshrined in the creeds, right? The Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and so on. And um, Catholics have to follow the faith. And uh, whatever they are told has to be measured uh, against the, the great standard of the faith. So if a priest were to say something that um, seems to contradict the faith, then that would have to be questioned, there's no doubt about it. Um, and the, the people, rather than just um, angrily walk away, as the people did when they walked away from Jesus, their Lord, Savior, when he promised to give his body and blood, we don't want them walking away like that. What they should do is they should have the courtesy, uh, the common decency to talk to the priest respectfully about what he said that they think might be at variance with the faith and explain why and what their concerns are and then listen carefully to what he has to say. I would dare say most of the time, by far, the priest, at least the traditional Catholic priests I know, would give a very good explanation. Um... And, and explain what he meant by what he said and why it is Catholic to say so. But, uh, you know, without going into great detail, any more than I have, uh, it would be wrong to uh, be unquestioning of anything and just have an attitude of complete reliance as though um, people were listening to an infallible authority, which is not. It would be wrong to question everything uh, to examine everything with an eye to try to discover the error in it. That would be very wrong to do, too. Um, but uh, what we'd like to think, it's, it's like a matter of conscience. I mean, a scrupulous person examines everything and analyzes everything to, ob uh, to oblivion, right? And are never satisfied. Well, you don't want to have an intellect um, like that. You, you don't want to have a, an intellect that analyzes everything to the point of uh, everything becomes meaningless. <clears throat> a person like that would lose his faith. But you want to have a conscience that is well-formed so that day by day, your conscience warns you if there's something wrong. Right? This is ideally what you have. You don't have to be examining everything you do before you do it to see if it, if it is moral or not, or could pot potentially involve some moral problem. Um, nor do you want an intellect which questions everything. You want especially a sensus catholicus, you know, you want the, the faithful Catholic sense and your knowledge of your faith to be uh, clear enough that 
if something comes up that is against the faith, then, then the warning bell sounds. You're not only looking for people to contradict the faith, but you want to have such a knowledge of your faith that if something is said that appears to contradict the teachings of the faith, you want your intellect, uh, with the benefit of the knowledge of the faith that you have, because you've studied it, you've taken it very seriously, you've prayed about it, you want that to, um, to warn you. You know, there's something you need to look into here. So, um, I would just say that in answer to our questioner here about himself or herself questioning, the priest says, don't be looking for things, but just know your faith well enough and be honest and fair enough that, uh, you know, if you, if you hear something that, that seems to be at variance with the faith, that you'll follow up on it and see exactly what's, you know, what, what you're being told and examine it in the light of faith. But let the priest who, who made the statement, let, let him first of all explain to you uh, what his statement means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Father, do you think we see these two extremes today? I mean, we, we definitely know those who are willing to, to question everything, but uh, also the other extreme, I think we see a lot of people who uh, are willing to, to think that everything Francis says is, is infallible. Um, and do you think that that could possibly uh, be be one of the, uh, the the reasons, the drivers of, of all of the, the changes of, of Vatican II and how they actually came to fruition was parishioners were just blindly trusting pastors who led them um, against the Catholic faith just because they had this kind of blind trust in them? I do, I do. I think people had such a respect for the recent popes, uh, Pope Pius IX, Leo the Thirteenth, uh, Pius the Tenth, Saint Pius the Tenth, of course, Pius the Eleventh, Twelfth. That um, they um, believed that uh, they were bound to uh, just accept everything, yeah. bishops and Francis himself, even excommunicating him. And um, this this is this shouldn't be surprising. It is to a number of Catholics who think. Well, if he's against Catholic and, and Catholic, if he's against Francis, if, they, if they're against Francis and his bishops, they must be Catholic. But that's not true. Uh, I mean, Putin has come out and criticized Francis, has criticized Francis in favor of the Orthodox schismatics. Huh? The fact that somebody criticizes Francis doesn't make him a Catholic automatically. You know, it doesn't make him a saint. <clears throat> doesn't make him a voice of Catholic truth. Um, so there are those who would hear, who heard Fran, uh, who had Putin criticize Francis and immediately think very highly of Putin because he criticized Francis. But that, you know, even now, I mean, there are liberal voices in the media who are beginning to criticize President Biden for things that he's done, and that shouldn't uh, beguile us into thinking, well, these voices in the media suddenly have undergone this massive conversion, and now they're on our side. They're not. So we have to be very careful about that. Uh, the old Catholics, the old Catholic sect, you know, you have the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which is the true Catholic Church, but then you have the breakaways under Arnold Harris Matthew in uh, the early 1900s. You have the schismatics of Barlitz, you have uh, Prince de Landes Berges, and the following from Arnold Harris Matthew. And you have the Duarte Costa line, which is a schismatic sect out of South America. And uh, they're all trying to position themselves now as other great traditionalists. But when they, when they started, they weren't great traditionalists at all. I mean, they were bringing in all of these newfangled <clears throat> modernistic ideas that the modern Novus Ordo has incorporated. But these, these old Catholics and so on were experimenting with these changes long before there was a Novus Ordo. And for them now to stand up and say, well, now we're traditional, it's just a ploy. I mean, they're just putting on a disguise because they realize, oh, there are traditional Catholics out there, and uh, they're now far, fair game, and this is basically just, a, I, I, as far as I'm concerned anyway, it's a marketing ploy to say, well, let's get them, let's get them in our doors. So you'll have the old Catholics, uh, you know, well, clergymen who will say a, an English Novus Ordo, uh, one 
day, uh, one, one so-called liturgy, and then have a Latin Mass the next. Sort of like the Novus Ordo does with their indult masses, you know, their, uh, what they used to have, and mixing the Novus Ordo with the, and the, with the vernacular and the traditional and the Latin, and just to basically cover the bases and get people in the doors, whichever they, whatever sells, whichever flavor of religion they feel like practicing that day. <clears throat> well, you know, again, the, the old Catholics have been doing this for years and years now. And uh, they've often been allied with the Orthodox in, in that very thing. So, I mean, from what little I know of them, I mean, what little I know insofar as I do know it, what tells me that they are schismatics, have been from the beginning and just basically are finding a, a niche, <laughs> a market niche now to appeal to traditional Catholics who are being, or Catholics who are being disaffected by Francis. So they want to basically uh, put the sign out, the shingle out. Oh, look, we're now we're traditional Catholics. Come, come one, come all. Mm-hmm. But Father, doesn't this tell you that, that they have received such publicity and um, apparently so much support that people are just craving strong statements like this? And people are <coughs> well, that's what they're counting on. Real yeah. leadership. They're, they're counting on attracting people precisely because um, there are so many people who are craving some kind of strong voice to to lead them and they know francis is is definitely wrong and uh they might well be vulnerable to listening to to a what is it called a catholic patriarchate of their own patriarchate they've dubbed dubbed themselves or schismatics who dubbed themselves not only a patriarchate but a catholic patriarchate patriarchate but this is simply a title they've adopted for themselves in order to lure people to think that they are Catholic and they're not, and they never were. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not since they, you know, followed the Orthodox line and went into schism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So. <clears throat> well, Father, I did want to um, read another email that, uh, that we received. It's uh, somewhat personal, but I thought it would be a great um, thing to, to go through. So if I can just read through this, uh, this viewer yeah. says that... Um, her and her husband have uh, recently been uh, converted from the Novus Ordo and have been attending a traditional uh, Catholic church for some time now. Mm-hmm. But she says, we both received annulments from our first marriages in the Novus Ordo church. And so this is now our second marriage. Uh, she says, our priest from the traditional Catholic church has discussed our annulments and informed us that they are not valid and that we should stay together for our children. But she says, Father, if the sacraments of baptism and confirmation under the Novus Ordo are not valid, how can our marriages be valid if they are a prerequisite? And can you please shed light on this situation and share your opinion about reversing our annulments while being remarried? Uh, Right. Well, uh, with regard to the traditional priests they go to deciding that the annulments are are, are null and void, he must have investigated, I, I'm assuming, he must have been investigated the first marriages. The only way um, a priest could um, determine whether or not, uh, well, you, you, know, you have to be careful here too, because the only way a priest could determine whether, whether an annulment is, uh, uh, has value is by determining whether or not the first marriages were valid marriages or not, according to the standards of the church, right? According to the judgment of the church. Now, we have to make it very clear that no traditional priest, no traditional bishop has any magisterial authority to grant annulments, period. Just don't have it. So somebody can come to us and say, well, we want an annulment, and say, well, I'm sorry, um, but I can't give you an annulment. Um, I can give you a, an opinion a theological opinion, but that's not worth anything in terms of, uh, you know, losing your soul or saving your soul as far as whether your marriage was valid or not. Uh, matrimony enjoys the favor of law in the church. It's actually part of our canon law spelled out exactly in those terms, which means that if people uh, pronounce their marriage vows between a priest and two witnesses, they're married. In the eyes of the church, they're married. And uh, the contrary has to be proven that they're not married. So the church has her um, tribunals, marriage tribunals, that in former days, in real Catholic days, would uh, consist of real moral theologians, sacramental theologians. So they would 
investigate each case that was brought to them, and sometimes investigate them for a year or two, getting all these sworn statements and determine whether they were credible or not, before the church would pronounce. And when the church pronounced on the validity of a single marriage, um, the church would not just render a theological opinion, um, again, because the people couldn't, couldn't act on that uh, mere theological opinion, the church would render a judgment above her uh, authority, God-given authority to say this marriage was this marriage was invalid. <clears throat> there was no real marriage here. It might have been a punitive marriage at first, such that people thought it was valid, but having investigated it and finding out the truth about it, we've discovered that there was some fatal flaw that prevented this marriage from being a valid marriage. Uh, for example, they, they might actually certify that one or the other of the, of the spouses getting married, one or the other, the bride or the groom, withheld consent and maybe said so ahead of time and went on record as saying that they are not consenting to this marriage. They're making it a trial marriage or something like that. If that could be proven to the church's satisfaction, then the church could render a judgment that no consent was really given to be married by one or the other, in which case, if either one of them didn't give consent, then there was no mutual consent that would make a marriage possible. Or, or they might discover that one of the parties had a previous marriage that was still binding them, and they were not free to marry. There was an impediment of a marriage bond that existed already. The church would investigate this and, and certify that it was, that it was true. So there, there are such things. The church has her dirham and impediments, um, which would render marriage invalid. And uh, the church ultimately is the authority that has to speak on the subject. And um, because it's a matter of magisterial authority, it's not something that any traditional priest or traditional bishop has uh, to be giving in marriage annulments. The trouble we have, though, is when people come to us with marriage annulments from the Novus Ordo, we realize these are not reliable. You can't, you can't risk your soul on these marriage annulments given because there are too many examples of where they are absolutely bogus from the beginning. Uh, you cannot trust their judgment. You know, when you, when you have the Novus Ordo giving reasons for annulments that the church had never recognized before, which the church had actually explicitly rejected before, when you have someone coming with a marriage annulment uh, from a marriage tribunal and you, you have priests sitting on those marriage tribunals saying that they could effectively uh, invalidate every single marriage on the face of the earth if they were given enough time. You know? And um, when, when you have a Francis saying that he thinks that the vast majority of their own marriages are invalid, um, you, know, you have some serious problems. Um, that the presumption is not that the marriages are valid, but the presumption is they're invalid. And, uh, you know, the, the people who come to you with marriage annulments will bring papers and let you see what they say. And the uh, pronouncements of these marriage tribunals are very vague. You know, and you ask, well, how did they come to that conclusion? The point being, you just cannot trust those annulments of the Novus Ordo. You know, back in 1968, I think there were maybe 300 total marriage annulments given for the, for the entire work world in what, the one year. And in 1985, I read like, 40,000 or so, maybe 45,000 marriage annulments given, 35,000 of them were in the state, United States alone. In 1991, there were almost 70,000 marriages annulled by the Novus Ordo. And, um, you know, it became, it became such a, a, a mockery of the very idea of the sanctity of the marriage bond, and the permanence of the marriage bond, that even some of the radical Novus Ordo leftists were beginning, the, 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 the modernists were getting a little nervous that maybe they're, they're maybe it's, it's getting out of hand, you know. So um, this is the, the mockery they're making of the sacrament of matrimony. Um, so in any case, um, one has to, you know, understand that one does not have a right to a marriage annulment, and there are those, um, you know, who um, have to accept the fact that they made a choice, pronounced their marriage vows, actually considered themselves married to someone who now uh, want that undone. Um, 
and um, you you cannot do that uh, if it's uh, you know attacks one of the the fundamental uh, properties of marriage indissolubility. You know, no one has the authority to go against that. So here you have evidently a priest who would looked into these marriages and determined that all the requirements for valid marriages existed. So that that speaks against the uh, marriage annulment that the Novus Ordo gave to each of them. Um, again, as I say, the presumption is not in favor of the annulments granted by the Novus Ordo, but it has to be against them. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at the individual cases and determine. Now, I mean, even there, if you look at the individual cases of the marriage annulments that were granted, if you look at the individual cases of the marriage annulments that are sought, let's put it that way, um, you might have somebody who say, well, there's a defect of intention, a defect of consent. Well, again, we're not in a position to be able to judge those things. But there are things that are objective fact. For example, let's say, you know, somebody married someone um, in the Catholic Church as Catholics. They got married. <clears throat> and um, then they got divorced and went off and married somebody else. You would say that that second marriage was necessarily invalid by, by just by law <clears throat> because they had an existing spouse at the time. So they could not marry another person at that time. Let's say in the meantime, the first, the real spouse died. And um, so the one they were really married to died, mm -hmm. right? And they had separated from the second person, whom they never really validly married in the first place. So there's a case where the second so-called marriage was clearly provable. that It was totally invalid, null and void from the beginning, just by the church's own law. The church has already judged that in advance, that this is invalid, you cannot validly marry this way. Let's say you have a case where you're looking into a marriage, marriage, um, supposed marriage, and you investigate this and you find out <clears throat> that a Protestant who's coming to you now, let's say they want to be traditional Catholic, want to marry a traditional Catholic, let's say, that the Protestant was married before, <clears throat> before a justice of the peace. And um, you investigate and you find out that the person they originally married before the justice of the peace was a baptized Catholic. Even the Protestant might not have been aware of it. Maybe the person they married never mentioned it or wasn't raised in the faith, but they were baptized in the Catholic Church. Well, the Church has said a Catholic who is baptized, a Catholic in the Catholic Church cannot validly marry before a justice of the peace. It's just a matter of the law. The Church says you can't do that. It's null and void from the beginning. So you find out that uh, they tried to get married, one of them, at least one of them being a baptized Catholic, before a justice of the peace or even a Protestant minister. And the church itself says that that is null and void. Well, in a case like that, you don't need a decree of annulment. The church has already pronounced on the validity or the invalidity of that marriage. Mm -hmm. So when I say a priest cannot give an annulment, I, I, I'm saying that in terms of the things that are invisible, the things that are a matter of judgment, the church, uh, the priest cannot do that. But if it's a matter of the church already having spoken on the subject, that this is an invalid marriage from the beginning, then you can, uh, the priest could proceed. For some reason, evidently, the priest involved here looked into the both marriages and determined that they have the requirements for being valid marriages, which would indicate that they were, at least in, in intent, Catholics who married as Catholics, uh, that was their intent, and um, both of them wound up uh, leaving or being left <laughs> by their spouses, and now they want to marry each other. And the priest would just have to say, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, I, mean, you, I can't, couldn't give you an annulment anyway. But it, here, in this case, it's clear that your marriages, or initial marriages, were valid marriages. Um, that you and the other person, ostensibly, as far as anyone can know by making the marriage vows, made it very clear, you intended to be husband and wife, 
And you thought of yourselves as husband and wife until you didn't want to be husband and wife anymore. But that doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make you not husband and wife anymore. So, um, you know, I would just say to these dear folks, uh, these dear people, that um, if they brought it before a traditional priest who evidently was very honest with them because he's not going to tell them what they want to hear. And uh, they can, um, you know, look for a second opinion to find out if there's some other fact that might change the, uh, the outcome. But I sincerely doubt it because... Uh, to find some clandestine um, matter of fact or law that would make both of these marriages invalid from, from the beginning would be extremely unlikely. Mm-hmm. And uh, other than that, they, they can't be married to each other as long as their spouses are alive. Mm-hmm. They just can't be. Father, does the, uh, does the doubtful nature of some Novus Ordo baptisms, does that further complicate matters and that you would have someone who is potentially not marrying as a baptized? Well, again, here you have, that's right, that's another part of the question that they brought up. That if we uh, say that the Novus Ordo baptisms are invalid and confirmations are invalid, then what about the marriages? I mean, they indicated in their question that the validity of the marriage somehow depended upon the validity of the baptisms, the validity of confirmations. Well, first of all, the validity of a marriage does not depend on being validly confirmed. Right. And even at that, I mean, traditional Catholic bishops will conditionally confirm, uh, which means that they're not uh, presuming that the modern confirmation ceremony is intrinsically invalid. But uh, because of the changes, the significant changes made in the ceremony, uh, that they're modern confirmations are doubtfully valid. And doubtfully valid from a number of points of, a number of, points of view. Um, you know, what, what are you questioning? And you're questioning the validity of the modern right of confirmation. You're questioning the validity of the right, whether, you know, it still expresses the very meaning of the, of the sacrament of confirmation. But I mean, even beyond that, there are other questions too. Is the bishop validly consecrated the bishop? Because his valid consecration depends upon the right of his country. And the person who consecrated him, is he validly able to consecrate a bishop? This is what the Novus Ordo has done. Yeah. It's put everything into question. Uh, just because of all the changes they've made. The revolution has called everything into question. And I mean, what about the ordination of, of the, to the priesthood of the bishop who confirmed you? Or the bishop who, or consecrated the man who confirmed you. Um, you know, what about the doubtfulness of even the ordination of the priesthood? Because you can't be uh, consecrated a bishop validly unless you're already ordained a priest validly. And uh, by changing, by all these sweeping changes that came in over a period of about 15 years during Paul VI's uh, tenure from a 63 to 78. Uh, it's it's thrown everything into question, you know. Even if one were to say, uh, "Well, what's on the books uh, of the new the new order, the, their new sacramentary?" Even if that ceremony would in itself be valid, uh, one still has to ask: Is it being actually followed and applied? As it is in the books, are, are priests just doing whatever they feel like to make it more relevant? You know? So one has to investigate that and look into it. But the fact is, um, I, don't, I don't know of any traditional Catholic priests who say that the new rite of baptism, as it exists in the Novus Ordo sacramentaries uh, or rituals, um, that the new rite of baptism is intrinsically invalid. I don't know a single Catholic priest, traditional Catholic priest, who insists that the rite of baptism is necessarily invalid. Maybe there are some that I don't know, but the fact is I don't know them. And um, all the traditional Catholic priests I know, uh, of all uh, different varieties and persuasions, 
agree that the Novus Ordo rite of baptism, as it was left in place, would still be valid if it you um, used the matter, the form, and had the intention. At least didn't have a contrary intention. Um, so we do not necessarily, uh, we certainly don't question or, or pronounce as invalid all Novus Ordo baptisms. We never have. But what we do say is that they require a second look. We requ they require a certain. They require some answers to questions that are unanswered. For example, was the actual ceremony formed and followed? Was the water poured, duly poured, and by the same uh, minister of the sacrament? Were the words of baptism pronounced? And beyond that. Was the one of what they call the minister of baptism um, at least intending to do what, what the Catholic Church does? As far as they know what that is, intending to do what the Church does in performing the sacrament, in performing the outward sign. They don't have the intention to take away original sin necessarily. They might have a contrary intention, saying, We don't believe in original sin, so what I'm doing here does not take away original sin. Now, there's a contrary intention, right? So that would make it invalid. But if there is just the, even the general intention to do what the church does, even if a person doesn't really know what that is, the church recognizes that that would be validly done. And that person would be validly baptized. These questions have been answered, by the way, already back from the 200s, already back in the third century, because there were, there were heretics then who were baptizing. And the Catholic church had to determine what to do with these, about these baptisms. Were they valid or not? And the church actually pronounced on that subject, and we have to traditionally follow that. We can't just uh, kind of willingly say, well, that's not good enough for me. I'm going to revisit that and come up with my own answer. The church has already answered this. That even heretics can baptize validly as long as they have the, as long as they follow the rite of pouring the water, saying the words, necessary words of baptism, and uh, at least having the intention of doing what the church does. Insofar as they understand what that is. Um, so, you know, when we have people come to be married, for example, this is a case of marriage, they've been baptized in the Novus Ordo. We will ask for evidence of the baptism, obviously, and we will ask some rather uh, necessary questions and find out if there is any evidence uh, to show that the uh, to question why the baptism would even be valid, in which case we would conditionally do it. But if there doesn't appear to be, as far as we can discern, uh, with the evidence uh, at hand, that there was anything that would render the baptism invalid, then we presume it is, it is valid. Um, the reason why matrimony enjoys the favor of law is because they pronounced the marriage vows. <clears throat> they had the witnesses present. The priest was, well, as far as they understood, Catholic. He thinks of himself that way. They think of themselves as this is what the Catholic Church is doing now. Um, even then, the old canon, Code of Canon Law, Canon 1099, though, provided for the validity of a marriage even when a priest was not present or couldn't be president, like in missionary territories, for a month. And even, even then, a duly authorized priest not being present um, would not prevent the pronunciation of, the pronouncing of marriage vows before two witnesses from being a valid marriage. Canon 1099 of the Old Code of Law actually spoke, speaks explicitly about this. Um, and for the same reason that a marriage would be presumed valid because it has been performed, the vows have been stated as they should be, and the people profess their intent to marry. So it is with baptism that there, the, you might say that the baptism enjoys the favor of law insofar as if it is performed, performed uh, appropriately, um, then the presumption is that it was, it was validly done. 
then you have to look for some evidence or some reason for questioning it. So, in any case, um, you know, the, the question they ask here, I'm not sure exactly how you put it there, but if they say, well, I, I gather they're kind of implying that we question their Novus Ordo baptism, so wouldn't that mean that when they married the original person, right, maybe they weren't baptized? Well, I mean, if they were, I mean, you, you can develop all kinds of yeah. things from that because all of the people involved complicated. Mm. If, neither of, if neither they or the people they married were validly baptized, they were all baptized in the Novus Ordo, all questionable or invalid, they could marry however they did, right? They would still be validly married. It wouldn't stop them from being validly married. So that's, that's not a way around this problem, to raise that question. Mm -hmm. uh, it just shifts it to another area. <laughs> but it, do, it doesn't make the marriages, the original marriages, go away by any means. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to point out, like you did, Father, that the um, the Novus Ordo is what has caused this, and that is what has made things so complicated. It's not the traditional church's law. It's not God's law that has made this, uh, this, these whole situations so complicated and incredibly complex and detailed. It's the Novus Ordo. And it's well said. Um, you're right. You're right. The church's law is very straightforward, very clear. We're the ones who mess it up. Yeah. And it's, it's what we do and our convoluted actions, behavior, that really complicates things. So, uh, so we're the culprit here. Yeah. Well, Father, we have just a little bit of time left, and I know you um, you had a few news items and current events that you wanted to get into. I know uh, some dealing specifically with our beloved vaccine mandates in regards to mm -hmm. the military and the religious mm -hmm. exemptions that were uh, that were requested. Could you? Well, I, I can wrap those up rather quickly, I think, Tom, I hope. All right. You, know, you might have heard that before. <laughs> so if you have any more questions, I mean, people have been waiting a while. No? That pretty well takes care of it? Yes. Okay, well, then I can, with a clear conscience, go ahead with I it. I guess so. <laughs> uh, something that concerns me, I've been writing a lot of letters for people uh, for religious exemptions, mm -hmm. and they've been rather successful. I take no credit for that. It's the grace of God, but also a very fine um, corporate attorney who was so generous that he uh, devoted time and effort to producing a letter that he believed would be illegally impressive. And it, evidently it has been, because um, uh, it has been very successful in uh, persuading the powers that be in various companies and, and schools to uh, grant. One, one place where, however, no religious exemptions are being granted is the United States military. And it just, uh, again, strikes me as being extremely duplicitous and even, even to the point of being just downright, um, what's the word? I mean, almost diabolically evil that they're inviting members of our military to submit these religious exemption uh, requests and granting none of them. They had no intention of granting any of them, but they wanted those um, with religious orientation, with some religious objections to the vaccines and all the rest, they wanted to identify them. They wanted to, uh, well, I guess the expression nowadays is they wanted to get them to rat themselves out or something by denouncing themselves by presenting these uh, uh, religious exemption requests just so that they could be identified, singled out, and attacked. <clears throat> and um, this is a, across, across the, the, the lines of all of our military services. You know. um, Marines, uh, and Navy, of course, uh, Air Force, Army, so on. Just a carte blanche refusal. <clears throat> but by submitting their request, people have been uh, basically putting themselves in the crosshairs of these uh, anti-religious, anti-God people who have taken over their, their woke military, and they are now marked for, for military death, in a sense, for, for punishment, for dismissal, for uh, uh, you, you name it. You know, they're, they're, being, they're being sought out and hounded and, and persecuted, really. Um, 
And where can they go? Well, some have tried to go to the courts to get these this stopped, but I don't know how much uh, help they're going to be able to get from the courts about this. Uh, this is all, you know, I'm sure uh, the commander-in-chief is President Biden, right? He's the commander-in-chief, and I'm sure he's behind all of this. Uh, but it's a very, very dirty game that the uh, leftists are playing. Very evil thing. Um, now I understand that they've identified 20 different government agencies, or very close to 20 different government agencies, who are actually keeping track of all those who seek religious exemptions from the vaccine. And so they're being identified and they're being... Uh, well, they're being marked. They're being marked as enemies of the New World Order. They're being marked as enemies of the Great Reset. They're being marked of the Build Back Better uh, program of the Marxists. Um, um, and uh, no doubt, you know, because they refused the vaccine, um, they are being, um, well, let's say the plans are being made for them. Um, people are going to use this information against them. Let's talk about camps being built precisely for these people to uh, inter them in these camps. Uh, would you put that past leftists? People here in this country might find it hard to imagine that this could be so. All they have to do is look at Australia. They have to look at uh, maybe even Austria and see what's going on there. And they realize, you know, it's, it's not far behind in this country. Um, this is exactly what the leftists have in mind. They, they actually took surveys of Democrats to see what they would want to do with the unvaccinated. And a very large number of Democrats want their children taken from them. They want them interred. They want them fired. Uh, they want them uh, basic, they want them locked down in their homes so they can't come out of their homes. And they want their children removed. And I'm talking about a, at least half in some, in some of those matters, even a majority of Democrats want that done to them. So what kind of, what kind of uh, despots are these people? You know, that this is the kind of desperate despots, that this is what they want to do, and they would do it right now if they could. They, they can't move on it yet because there's too much opposition, but their goal is to consolidate their power so they can do these things. That's what their intention is. Um, you know, the people who are behind uh, forcing this, this new world order now, whatever they want to call it, uh, Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, and so on, they make no secret of their admiration for the communist Chinese. They admire the Chinese Communist Party, and they admire the society that the Communist Chinese Party have imposed upon the Chinese people. They admire that. They speak in glowing terms of Xi Jinping, they speak in glowing terms of the communist society in China and what they're doing to people. Uh, Schwab was recently praising Xi Jinping, right, Davos, praising, he introduced him, okay, uh, as his excellency, I think it was, and talked about the wonderful things, you know, that are going on in China and how we should follow this example. Bill Gates has made no secret of his admiration for Xi Jinping. Uh, and the communist system there. This is what, he, what they intend, not just want to, this is what they intend to bring here and intend to impose upon us. And uh, all in the name of this disease. In fact, somebody, I was just uh, reading a report, and they actually cited Bill Gates as saying uh, some time ago, uh, the next pandemic is going to be the Marburg virus. Well, for those of you who have any uh, knowledge of the Marburg virus, that's a scary thought. It causes massive internal hemorrhaging. They don't really have anything to um, save you from it uh, that I know of. Um, but they, they say that they have actually developed a vaccine of some kind, or they're in the developing a vaccine for that now. What they actually are already forecasting as the next pandemic and uh, the fact that they're saying out loud, Gates himself saying out loud, this is the next pandemic, tells you that he's not just guessing, right? Uh, there are plans for this here. Uh, there is some kind of a, uh, 
uh, of a uh, vaccine. They, they're, they're in the works now. In fact, the FDA, I think, has just granted a fast track um, permission for one of these uh, vaccine companies, these uh, biomedical companies, to develop a vaccine called uh, Revax, which includes ricin, which is a very virulent poison. And they say that this is going to be one of the big vaccines they're going to be um, not only making available, but we see what they mean by that. They're going to be doing everything they can to impose it on every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. This is a scary thing. This is, this is their plan, and this is why we've said it's extremely important that we uh, insist that uh, we are not going to be part of their plan. This is why what Father Pagliarotti, who is the head of the Society of St. Pius X, this is why what he's saying is so outrageous, that those who are refusing these vaccines, that they so-called, these experimental biological agents they've come up with, that those who are refusing them in saying that they're, they're appealing to the integrity of their own bodies by law, and they have to consent to this, that no one can vaccinate them or inject them with any of their experimental serums without their consent is equivalent to a woman saying, my body, my choice, and justifying an abortion of a baby. The fact that any traditional priest could, could think like that is, is extremely, not only mystifying, it's actually very alarming. And to think that he's the head of a worldwide traditional Catholic organization now and is talking like that, equating the two of these things, is astounding to me. And... Uh, you know, the fact that the Society of St. Pius X kind of officially has opened the gateway to take these vaccines, and it might be the prudent thing to do, it might be the moral thing to do, it might be the, the, the right thing to do for people. Uh, again, it is just amazing to me. And uh, I gather that Father Sanborn pretty much has come out and said the same thing, um, that he himself has not taken the vaccine because his cardiologist has advised him against it because of his personal health situation. I mean, he's on record. He's on record saying this in programs on the Internet. But that uh, he's not discouraging others from taking the vaccine. And um, he says he's in no position because to, to tell them uh, not to take it, be, advise them not to take it because he's not a medical doctor. Then he goes on in the program that I saw, to actually uh, kind of endorse or discuss medical medical matters, even though he said, you know, I'm not a physician, I, I, I can't really advise you on this. So I think there's, there's a lot of not only uh, confused thinking, I think there's a lot of actually very dangerous thinking going on there. And I, I'm horrified to find it going on among those who present themselves as traditional Catholic priests and bishops, clergy. Um, all of this really is playing right into the hands of, I believe, a new world order which has been prophesied um, as something truly satanic and um, which features the mark of the beast. And I think the, the vaccines that they're foisting on everyone and... Uh, trying to compel everyone to accept are just a step in that process, preparing them for that. So in any case, um, this is just something that I think is necessary to say at this point, especially because there are would-be traditional Catholic clergymen who are actually taking the part of the, of the leftists, uh, the one-worlders, uh, and... Uh, well, I'm afraid, um, encouraging people to accept what, what really will be the mark of the beast. Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. And uh, Francis, I mean, th th that is another odd thing, that these, some of them, are very, very vociferous opponents of Francis and criticizing everything he does, and yet in this, they are actually one with Francis. I mean, Francis has actually mandated the vaccines in Vatican City, and um, and uh, he's actually imposing fines on people. He's putting penalties on people who don't follow the the, uh, the COVID rules in the Vatican. And there's actually a list of the penalties that you're going to suffer if you violate the mask rules and 
the vaccine rules and all the rest. He's going to penalize you. Um, and this is, in microcosm, what they're trying to do to the whole world. But the Vatican, Vatican now, in the clutches of these leftists, or this leftist, is actually imposing a, a kind of a, a situation that you would expect to find in communist China. But it's the Vatican. Is it surprising? Considering Francis's um, hand-in-glove of not just kowtowing to, but just basically his complete ad submission to the Communist Party of China. Uh, it's not surprising that he would uh, be the Xi Jinping of the Vatican and follow that lead there. So, in any case, um, you know, I think it's necessary to um, put aside, put this aside, because just to leave this at at the at these dire concerns and warnings here, it, it we have to go to a spiritual, the spiritual overview of this, right? Because we can drown in these these goings on now and become very. Uh, depressed and demoralized by them. And that is not what I want to happen here. Um, I don't want us to obsess about these things, but I do think we need to pay attention to them. And I do think we need to understand what's going on in the big picture. But it would not be the big picture if we just saw this and nothing else. But we need to see it all, in all of this is a divine plan. And none of this is happening without God's leave, right? None of this is happening without actually God's warning to us. God is in absolute control. Uh, he's given us our free will. He respects our free will. And uh, even when we are inflicting these things upon ourselves, um, God appeals to us. He provides grace for us. Um, but ultimately, he's not going to make the decision for us whether we're going to go to heaven or hell whether we're going to sin or not. And so we have to, we're left with that responsibility to make these decisions, and this is what's happening. And it really comes down to a matter of our sin. And so, you know, there are those who, who talk about civil war and so on. Well, we've, we've been in a civil war. We've had a civil war going on here since January 22nd, 1973, with the Roe versus Wade decision of the Supreme Court. We've been in, in an uncivil war all this time. Uh, it's been in progress all this time. The uncivil war has been going on. As soon as Blackman issued the majority opinion referring to the child in the womb as potential life or potential human life, you've had, we've had a, a, an uncivil war going on against the very lifeblood of our nation. What, what he did there uh, in referring to the potential life of the child in the womb, is he just destroyed the very concept of a human soul, an immortal soul created by God. That life is something that kind of slowly biologically develops, a human life slowly bi biologically develops in the womb. That can only be so if there's no soul created in the image and likeness of God from the beginning. So what we see here is a blatant attack on, the, on the, the, the divine revelation and the church's teaching about the existence of a human soul, which is what makes us human. So when Harry Blackman and his seven uh, conspire, you know, agreeing judges there uh, issued that, that decision, Roe versus Wade, striking down all the anti-abortion laws of all the states across the country, he was actually attacking the very notion of what it is to be human. That's far worse than anything the, the uh, you know, this, this Communist Party of the Soviet Union did. They didn't try to start defining who is human and who is not and what makes you human. But uh, their atheism was bad enough. But I'll tell you, Blackman's um, decision was worse, worse than atheism because it was as close to as an explicit denial of the existence of the human soul and what actually makes us human, the fact that we are created in the image of God, that's what was at stake there. And everything we see happened since then. All these things that have happened to our country since then are playing out of that problem. They all go back to that denial. 
we have to relate everything we're, we're witnessing now, everything we fear happening now, goes back to that denial of God and uh, God's sovereignty and the existence of the soul. So that's where we have to go. Our Supreme Court is about to reconsider, as it were, the Roe versus Wade decision. We have to pray very hard, not with confidence in the Supreme Court justices. We don't have confidence in humans, right? Uh, our confidence is God. As we say, auditorium nostrum in nomine domini, our, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's where our confidence is. <clears throat> and so we have to pray to God to give the fortitude. First of all, to give the clarity of understanding to our Supreme Court justices so they know what is right. And we have to pray to God to give them the grace of, of charity and fortitude so that they have the courage to do what is right. It is a matter of grace, and we, we rely on God giving that grace. Uh, we see it happen. There are people who are standing up now against great opposition to speak the truth. That takes fortitude. That's not just a human factor. They're not just doing that because they're obstinate. They're, you know, it's clear they're doing that because they believe it's the right thing to do. There's a grace from God at work there. Make no mistake about it. Our prayers are what call down upon our leaders the graces they need to lead in truth and justice, fortitude. So we absolutely have to pray. If we, if we don't pray for these people, we have no right to expect a good outcome. And God forbid that we should appear before the judgment seat of our Lord and find out that it was for lack of our prayers that these bad things were <clears throat> happening. That for lack of our being in the state of grace, for our being, the fact that we were in the state of mortal sin is what caused these things to happen. So uh, ultimately, what, what we, we see the, the desperate, desperate attempts of Nancy Pelosi and others in Washington to try to create this uh, illusion of, of a, an insurrection in January 6th, a year ago. And that's what it is. It's, it's just smoke and mirrors. They're trying to fabricate an insurrection. There was no insurrection. There was no uh, idea of overthrowing the government of the United States of America. Nobody had that idea. Okay. Um, but um, what we need really is a, a, not an insurrection, but we need a resurrection. We need the resurrection of faith. We need the resurrection of our faith. That's the key. So um, we have to uh, profess our faith and we have to live our faith, our traditional Catholic faith. It's all about that right now. Um, so anyway, with that thought, I, I'll leave you. But uh, just encourage all of our traditional Catholic people out there to learn their faith, live their faith, and uh, have confidence in God that uh, they are serving God's almighty will insofar as their fidelity is, is there today, that they are standing firmly for what they, what they know is the right thing. The true traditional Catholic faith, and they're practicing it. They're there at the foot of the altar. They're adoring our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament exactly where they should be. That's where the eagles are gathered, as it were, today. So please be strong in your faith and pray for those who need faith and strength. Amen. Thank you, Father. Appreciate that. Appreciate your time. Thanks for everything mm, that you do. Certainly, time. Thank you. Yep. Thanks to Bless all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.